WDBM East Lansing. 89 FM. The Impact. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. In world news today, North Korea's state media have been reporting pledges of loyalty to new leader Kim Jong-un after the death of his father, Kim Jong-il, according to the BBC. State media hailed the new leader, 27, as the outstanding leader of our party, army, and people. The U.S. has urged North Korea to pursue a path of peace. Kim Jong-il died on Saturday of a heart attack caused by overwork and stress at the age of 69. And in national news today, President Barack Obama demanded that Republicans in the House of Representatives quickly pass a short-term extension of a payroll tax cut, showing an unwillingness to back down on a fight that could result in higher taxes for 160 million American workers, according to Reuters. And in Michigan news today, Governor Rick Snyder has signed into law a measure that lifts the limit on how many university-sponsored charter schools are allowed to operate in the state. Opponents of the law say the traditional public school model is proven successful, while the record of charters is spotty, according to Michigan Public Radio Network. An unlimited number of university-sponsored charter schools will be allowed in the state by the year 2015. And exposure tonight, we will be talking with an MSU alumnus, uh, Megan Gebhardt, about her endeavor to drink a cup of coffee with a stranger every week for an entire year. That's later in the hour. But first... Fifteen years ago this week, the Oakland, California School Board passed a controversial resolution which recognized the legitimacy of ebonics. People across the country both praised and criticized the decisions. Exposure's Emmanuel Berry sat down with an MSU professor to take a look back at the Oakland decision and a look forward on the relationship between ebonics and education. Emmanuel Berry, Impact News. Today I'm joined by MSU professor Austin Jackson to reflect on the Oakland Ebonics controversy. Jackson has a PhD in African American and African Studies and has co-authored several publications which look at the links between the teaching, rhetoric, and writing of popular struggles for racial, economic, and social justice. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Um, so first, could you give a little bit of background on the relationship um, between education and ebonics and uh, kind of what led up to the Oakland School Board's decision? Well, before we talk about the Oakland decision, I think it's important to give a little bit of context um, before uh, we talk about the ebonics resolution um, of 1996-1997 um, for a better understanding. Um, in 1972, the Conference on College Composition and Communication passed its own resolution um, called Students' Right to Your Own Language. And essentially what that resolution stated was that students had the right to be taught uh, to learn in the language of their nurture or nature. And the reason why that's significant is because um, as early as 1972, uh, language educators realized that there were significant hurdles for African-American students when it came to writing um, standard English um, in schools. And they anticipated the possibility that students that entered the classroom who spoke black English or African-American language or Ebonics would be discriminated against um, in the classroom because teachers were not familiar with that particular dialect and therefore would have a hard time understanding what is the best way to teach students um, who speak uh, Ebonics uh, standard English? 
so that's the sort of like that's where we have to begin. Um, we have to proceed from there to the 1979 Ann Arbor Ebonics case. And that was a landmark language case in which students that were attending the Martin Luther King Jr. Elementary School in Ann Arbor um, were discriminated against based on language. Um, Their parents had realized that several of those students were put in classes reserved for the uneducatable, um, placed in classes for um, special education uh, just because they spoke differently. Mm -hmm. And um, one of our professors here, Geneva Smitherman, who's a university distinguished professor of English, um, was the chief witness for the kids in that case in which um, they won their landmark, this landmark decision that showed that teachers' ignorance of Ebonics led to those kids being uh, discriminated against, um, their uh, educational rights violated because they were deemed as uneducatable uh, just because they spoke a different dialect of English. So that's a little bit of background before we get to uh, the Oakland case. Mm-hmm. Um, in the case of Oakland, uh, the school school district realized that their African-American students were suffering when it came to uh, the standardized test scores for the state of California. Um, I believe it was 1.8 at the time on average for um, these kids in a predominantly black school district. So what the school board did was that they recognized that was well over 50 years worth of research into um, methods and techniques uh, for teaching black kids standard English by teaching teachers to understand the dialect that these students enter the classroom with. Um, so the so-called Ebonics resolution was aimed at one simple thing, was to take the concept of bilingualism that was already well established um, and apply that to African-American students um, and essentially train teachers to understand the language, the language registers that these students enter the classroom with, um, by, by dialectalism, if you will. So, and that's all. That's all. That's all the resolution was about: the simply preparing teachers to work with students who spoke Black English and had Black English manifest within their writing and also their speech, in order to teach them standard English. Well, what ended up happening was um, essentially two things. After that, um, there was a national controversy because of it. Um, everyone from Bill Clinton to Al Gore um, and Jesse Jackson weighed in and um, Oprah Winfrey, and they lambasted the decision, Um, lambasting the decision because they didn't know anything about black English whatsoever. Um, So the decision was actually attacked, um, you know, simply out of of, uh, linguistic ignorance, if you will. What were some of the misconceptions that they had about what the resolution was was aiming to do? Well, a couple of things. Uh, One, um, very few people actually read the resolution itself. Um, if anyone that read the resolution, which I have right in front of me, uh, would see that the goal was not to teach students uh, black English. It wasn't to teach kids slang. Um, that, as I'm looking at the resolution right now, it says very clearly, whereas the standardized tests and grade scores of African-American students in reading and language arts skills, measuring their application of English skills, are substantially below state and national norms, and that such deficiencies will be rem- remedied by application of a program featuring African language system principles in instructing African-American children both in their primary language and in English. So just from the jump, um, you can see just by that one uh, paragraph that the goal from the onset was, in fact, to teach these kids standard English. So that's 
that's the the first problem that no one really read the resolution they just heard about it on the evening news and then decided to react mm -hmm. the second thing which is a broader problem i think within american society in general is that um americans know very little about language itself um we have we're very poor when it comes to understanding um not only other languages but other dialects and the ways that language works um we're a very monolithic um culture and um and that contributed to um, a lot of the misconceptions. Um, the uh, most significant misconception related to that was that um, a lot of people said that they're going to teach the kids ignorance and teach the kids, you know, slang. Um, the problem with that is that African Americans actually speak a dialect of English that is systematic, is rule governed, and it's not slang, although slang is included. Mm -hmm. um, it is, in fact, a language or, you know, what we might call a, a dialect. And um, and because we don't really teach teachers, we don't really teach about language difference um, in our society, in our schools. Um, that is the underlying reason, I believe, that the decision was quickly attacked just out of linguistic ignorance. Do you think that the resolution has had an impact on today, the way that we teach schools? Or do you think that it kind of hasn't really changed anything um, about the way that Ebonics interacts with education? Well, a resolution is precisely that. A resolution is not a policy, and that's essentially what the problem is, is that um, we, have to train, we have to move these resolutions into some kind of policy. Now, um, I don't have the research in terms of what Oakland actually did after that because there was such a, a brouhaha after um, you know, they decided that they would do something significant um, to help these kids. Um, so I don't have that data in front of me. Um, I will say what has been encouraging is that um, the scholarship on um, Ebonics um, continues to flourish, and uh, more teachers um, are becoming more more linguistically aware and and more sensitive. And we, we, I can see that when um, I go to the National Council of Teachers of English and I look at the number of sessions on African American language or Ebonics. So teachers, uh, I think there has been a growing awareness um, thanks to um, language activism on the part of people like Geneva Smitherman and four C's and NCTE, but there's a lot of work to be done when it comes to actual language policy. Um, we have a sort of contradiction, if you will. Um, on the one hand, uh, we have an explosion you know, of scholarship showing that, hey, these kids are not just speaking slang, they're not speaking ignorance, um, they are actually speaking um, a, a language um, that um, is, was derived um, from the uh, time of slavery. When slaves came over here on slave ships you know, in 1619, they didn't come speaking the king's English. Um, that came with their African languages, and over time, um, their language, their their native African languages were suppressed, um, and they began to acquire uh, the words of uh, what we might call American English. Um, where Black English comes into play is because Black English or Ebonics is a language mixture, if you will, like any dialect is a language mixture. No language is actually pure, so it's essentially American words. Uh, laid on top of um, African syntax or African rules for sentence structure. Can you give an example of... Um, okay, well, I'll just give one quick example of African-American syntax, although it's not limited to syntax. It's also mm -hmm. phonology, morphology, um, and so on. But, okay, I have my cup of coffee right here. So in standard English, you would say um, the coffee The coffee is cold. Um, I need to heat up my coffee. I would say the, my my coffee is cold. Um, however, because in West African languages, and that's where most African Americans uh, were enslaved, um, and they brought their language systems with them, um, 
there is not uh, forms of B. Um, forms of B um, are expressed differently, um, either through tonality or um, some other um, aspect is shown in, in, other, in other ways. So instead of saying, um, you know, my coffee, you know, the coffee's cold, um, I would simply say the coffee cold. Um, and that's what's called zero copula. And zero copula uh, expresses a temporary condition. So that's one major feature um, of African-American syntax. Um, that, that's true across the board, not only just in African-American culture, but if you go to Brazil or if you go to Jamaica, um, they would have the same linguistic structure. So Ebonics is not just limited to African-Americans. Um, the systematicity of it um, you'll find in other, wherever you'll find um, descendants of African people. So if I was in Jamaica, um, I would say, please excuse my bad Jamaican patois, um, I wouldn't say, you know, the coffee is cold, you know, and the lingua franca of Jamaica, I would say, you know, the coffee cold. And you notice that there's still no copula. There is no B form there to express a temporary a temporary condition. So, and this scholarship on this, not to belabor the point, has been well established all the way since um, 1949 with a guy named Lorenzo Turner, um, who saw, you know, uh, survivals of African-American language uh, between, uh, like, the language that's spoken here in the United States and um, also in West Africa, uh, Geneva Smitherman, as I mentioned before, um, and so forth and so on. So this, anyone that wants to take a look at the scholarship, um, it's actually there. The problem, I think, is that most people don't look at the scholarship and that all the controversies about black English have nothing to do with language itself. It has to do with black people and, you know, whether or not uh, we're willing to take a look, um, a hard look, at the fact that African-Americans continue to constitute its own distinct speech community. And um, so, yeah, so that's that. Um, how do you think Ebonics should fit into the classroom? Um, what, how should teachers use it and how should, how should it, yeah, how should it fit into the classroom, I guess? Um, well, in several ways. Depends on what classrooms you're actually talking about. Now, if we're talking about our most at-risk kids, you know, let's, let's say, um, you know, one of the things that I do is I work with um, at-risk kids in Detroit. Um, the lingua franca of Detroit, meaning that the common language of Detroit um, is not standard English. Um, it's black English, and that, that's across the board. It's not just those that are stuck in the slums. Uh, black English is what's spoken in the church by people's grandmothers, by the mayor, by the school board, um, by the city councilwoman. Um, so black English is, in fact, the lingua franca, and you'll find it both in the unofficial world and also the official world, business and commerce, um, and even schools. So when it comes to incorporating black English in schools, one of the things that um, we, we're beginning to see is that teachers are beginning to realize that we need to have students master two, two dialects, that standard English um, is a dialect, and so is black English. So we need to basically try to find methods for code switching. How do you um, implement um, a code switching pedagogy, something that a lot of people in my profession um, have been dealing with for some time, you know, giving equal exposure you know, to both dialects and changing students' attitudes about the language that they speak because a lot of students are embarrassed by the language that they speak. They have a negative conception of black English. And so we have also have to work on um, you know, language attitudes as well. So that's one way. But more generally, outside of at-risk students, um, we need um, a language policy that will train teachers and teacher educators um, to um, learn more about the diversity of languages and, and, and dialects in the United States generally, it's not just about black English, but that there's not just one standard. 
um, there's a famous linguist, um, you know, Noam Chomsky, you know, who said the difference between um, a language and a dialect is uh, whoever controls the army and the navy, uh, meaning that uh, who, standard English is a standard English only because it's the language of power and domination. If black people were in power, black English would be the language of domination and standard English would be suppressed or ridiculed as substandard dialect. So um, we need more language awareness in our schools generally for everyone, including white people as well, because issues of language discrimination um, in our classrooms and also in the workplace is not limited to just black people. Um, I'm from New York, and um, I know uh, of classmates who have taken, like, dialect uh, reduction classes because they sound too Italian, you know, they sound too ethnic, um, and they're scared that that's going to be held against them in the workforce. So, and that's um, that. why that might be a ra reality. It's a sad reality for a country that prides itself on diversity. If we pride ourselves on our diversity, um, we also should pride ourselves on our linguistic diversity as well. In the studio with me is Austin Jackson talking about education and Ebonics. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Now back to Impact Exposure. to Impact 89 FM. In the studio, I have Megan Gebhardt. She is a recent MSU alum who dedicated a year to drinking coffee with strangers. She calls this project 52 Cups of Coffee. Welcome to the show, Megan. It's great to be here. So what inspired you to do this project? And tell me a little bit about this project. So 52 Cups of Coffee was my year-long experiment in caffeine and conversation. So I decided that I would spend my senior year um, having coffee with strangers. Each week for a year, I'd have coffee with someone I didn't know and then write about their story and what I learned in the process. And the project really originated my sophomore year of college when I got an unexpected email from a student who got my name from an advisor. And in the email, he said, I hear you're working on some entrepreneurial things. I'm an entrepreneur. Let's get coffee and see if we can help each other. And I went into the meeting not really expecting anything out of it. And the result of this meeting was I met this person who would become one of my best friends. And three years later, or I guess two and a half years later, I was reflecting on that cup of coffee, and my curiosity got the best of me. And I thought, meeting one new person could have such an impact on my life. What would a year of meeting new people do? Uh, so I figured there was only one way to find out, and I launched the project last July. Last July. And you have now recently completed this 52 cups of coffee. Yes, um, actually. So it took a little bit longer than a year, but I did. I had coffee with 52 different people. And, and that project concluded when? Uh, a week ago, or last Tuesday. Last Tuesday. Excellent. And what types of people did you have coffee with, and how did you find them? A huge spectrum of people. I talked to everyone from this six-year-old adoptive, adopted Native American girl in my hometown and this recovering alcoholic to President Simon and Coach Tom Izzo and Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak. So I, I hit the spectrum. Wow. And I found the people. There were kind of three ways that I found them. It started out just kind of reaching out to people that I knew of or people that I found on Twitter or people that um, were doing cool things in the community and I just had never really met them face to face. And then it progressed to asking people for recommendations and that ended up being the best way to find people. I was traveling to Seattle to visit my brother for Thanksgiving and I asked a friend who's really well connected out there, I said, do you know someone really interesting who would be willing to talk to me? And then towards the end of the project, I had a handful of people reach out to me and say, you know, I hear what you're, what you're, or I've heard about what you're doing. I think it's really great. Would you have coffee? So those were kind of the three methods. So what kind of reactions would you get from people when you would ask strangers, 
Come have coffee with me. It was incredible. There was, I did not receive a single no. Um, the only, that's, that's not entirely true. The only people that wouldn't have coffee with me were the people that didn't have room in their schedules. So I said, I'm going to be in New York this weekend. And they said, I'm sorry, I'm going to be out of town. But it's amazing how willing people are to sit down and help out somebody else, especially someone in college. I think a lot of times people that are older or further down in their career realize that they wish they could have gotten some advice when they were little or someone gave them really great advice when they were leaving college. So they're really willing to sit down and share that advice with others. And what were some of your favorite cups of coffee? I feel like that's an unfair question because there were so many incredible moments and experiences from the project. Seth Godin is a best-selling author in New York who is a big idol of mine. And so I had the opportunity to sit down with him. So that one was an incredibly, um, that one meant a lot to me. But there were some other really great ones. All of them were great for one reason or another. But I think a really memorable one is Cup 40, a woman named Janine who actually lives in Poland. And so this is really representative of how the project really changed my life. So Last September, I had coffee with an MSU grad student who was Polish. He has cerebral palsy, and he's he's in a wheelchair. Um, and, a, he, and if he's not in his wheelchair, he gets around with a scooter. So you would look at this kid and think, oh, the poor guy confined to a wheelchair because he has cerebral palsy, and you just would kind of feel bad for him. And then you talk to him for two minutes, and you realize he is one of the most vibrant people and one of the most um, – joyful and has one of the most satisfying life of anyone you'd ever met ever I had ever met in my life and so he was from Poland and he was going back to Poland for um, the summer and early on in the project all these people told me to travel while I was young and so I decided at Christmas that I wasn't going to look for a job I was going to go to Europe for two months so I happened to be in Poland the same time he was in Poland so he calls me up and he says, you have to come visit. I don't care what it takes. You have to come to my hometown. So I get to his hometown and his grandmother doesn't speak a word of English. And, but she has these incredible stories because when she was 18, World War II breaks out. And so she's out there watching all the men in her life get shipped off to war or concentration camps or prisoner of war camps. And here she is, you know, trying to defend her little town from these invaders. And so Peter is telling me this, and I said, I have to talk to your grandma. She has to be a part of this project. I have to have coffee with her. And she doesn't speak English, but Peter speaks Polish. So we had this really incredible cup of coffee where Peter translated the entire conversation. And it was memorable for a lot of reasons because her story was so incredible, but also it really illustrates that you never know where a new connection will take you. When I sat down to have coffee with Peter, I didn't expect we'd become friends. I certainly didn't expect I'd be hanging out with him in Poland six months later, and I didn't expect that I would be sharing this really magical moment with his grandmother. So those, uh, those were some of the moments where you just kind of sit back and you go, wow, life is really crazy and beautiful if you are willing to take a risk and try something or reach out to someone. So for those that may just be tuning in, I'm talking with Megan Gebhardt. She's a recent MSU alum who dedicated a year to drinking coffee with strangers, and she's she's um, written about every experience along the way, and you can follow that at 52cups.tumblr.com. So I noticed when I was reading your blog, um, you have listed every single person and every single cup of coffee that you had, and then under everyone's name, you would write kind of a lesson that you learned from them. And, and when, I, when reading through your, your final 
blog post, you were mentioning how much of an impact this made on your life. So what, what kind of overall themes or lessons did you learn throughout this entire project? I think the, the one that really stands out and the one that I most needed to learn as a senior in college, really nervous about what the future would bring, is that life does not go according to plan. Of all the people I talked to, besides Coach Izzo, none of them are are doing today what they thought they would be doing the day they left college. And when I started the project, I was so concerned with figuring out that perfect plan and getting that perfect job. And I just thought if I don't do everything right and I don't find that perfect job or perfect plan, I've just kind of screwed up the rest of my life. That's <laughs> probably unhealthy thinking when you're a senior in college. But that really was my mentality. And I talked to all these people and I realized that there is no such thing as a perfect plan. And more importantly, you get to decide for yourself what you want out of life. And and it's really up to you to figure out the plan that works best. And so I, I realized that the future is uncertain. Um, things happen that are outside of your control. Good things or bad things. I mean, tragedy, tragedies happen, illnesses, unexpected breakups or whatever it might be. But then also really great things happen where you're going along with your life and then all of a sudden this person comes into your life that you didn't expect or an opportunity or you realize a passion. And so if you can't predict the future and life is filled with uncertainty, I think I really came to realize that you just have to embrace that uncertainty and realize that the future is really great if you're willing to work hard and take chances and get back up when you fall down. And that wasn't a mentality I had when I, I started the project. Um, I was so overwhelmed with anxiety to graduate. And then after I graduated, I realized life is going to be really cool as long as I'm willing to do the work to make it really cool. And, and how has your plan changed then? Now that, li that you say life is uncertain <laughs> and your plan always changes, how has your plan changed since you've done this project? So... Um, I have uh, I, I, when I started the project, I figured that by December of the December following graduation, I would have a job in an office in a city. And where, what did you graduate with? What marketing, was your degree? Mar marketing, marketing. Degree. So, okay. uh, for the first six months after I graduated, I was intentionally homeless and unemployed. So I, I decided to travel and. In, since graduating, I've stayed in 75 different locations, which means I average being in a new place every three days. And it started with me just wanting a break from college and time to explore to figure out what I wanted. And then it turned into an actual job with Michigan State's Alumni Association. So I actually started in November doing contract work for the Alumni Association uh, as a young alumni, doing young alumni engagement. So they're sending me to different cities to connect with young alumni to figure out how we can better serve them these alumni that leave school, how do we help them? How do we create programs that are beneficial? So I did not expect that I would be traveling and nomadic and working for the university, but, but it's really great because I'm doing exactly what I want to be doing. Um, just kind of exploring and I'm much more relaxed about where the future will go because I think that this opportunity will lead to the next one, which will lead to the next one. And it's exciting. I'm really excited about life. Not that I wasn't when I was a year and a half ago, but now I'm more excited about life. And where where have you traveled? Oh man, I think I've I have been in 13 different countries and probably 20 different states since I graduated. So those two months I spent in Europe and then 
since I've been back. I'm originally from Wyoming, so the state of Wyoming. I went to Nashville and New York and California and Chicago and Boston and South Dakota, um, Idaho, so all over the place. And why did you choose 52 cups of coffee? Why that number? Um, it, for a, Well, the original reason was that there are 52 weeks in a year, which the fact that I didn't finish the project in a year kind of ruins that. But I really like the numbers 5 and 2 and 7, and 5 plus 2 equals 7. So those are quirky, irrational reasons to pick 52, but it just felt like a good number. Sounds like an answer from a marketing major. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So how long would your would your conversations last on average? They would vary. I, I would say... 45 minutes to three hours. Um, sometimes you you just find someone and you, uh, some of the people we just get on a roll and then all of a sudden time would fly by. But I think the shortest was probably 45 minutes. Um, but it really varied from person to person. So you, you wrote in your blog that you believe that um, where you are in five years depends on the books that you read and the people that you meet. Tell me a little bit more about that statement and why you believe that. So that's a quote that I heard a long time ago, and it really resonated with me. And I, th- I, I, I love, well, I, I guess this year is a great example of what happens when you meet new people. And I think everyone's kind of not stuck in their box, but they're in their comfort zone. And I think when you meet new people, whether by choice or by chance, it changes you a little bit. And so the more people you meet, the more you kind of change. And I really believe that it's important to surround yourself with good people. And I think that was what really motivated this project was if I could meet 52 really cool people, that would probably be 52 positive changes to me. Um, And then books, I've always been a, a... a reader, and I don't think it's books necessarily, but just like learning that curiosity to read books or read blogs or read things that um, are interesting. So it's about learning and meeting new people. And if you if you're always doing that, you're always kind of changing. I see. Well, well, in the studio is Megan Gebhardt. She is a recent MSU alum who devoted a year to drinking coffee with strangers. The project was called 52 Cups of Coffee, and you can follow that journey at 52cups.tumblr.com. Megan, thanks so much for joining us today. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Now back to Impact Exposure. In the studio is the local band East Harvest. They are here to talk about their music and perform for us. Welcome to the show, East Harvest. Thank you for having us. What's up? So can you guys introduce yourselves and what you do? Um, My name is Adrian Sanchez, and I am the singer, the lead vocals, songwriter of the group. I'm Connor Ralph. Um, I play djembe uh, and also uh, sing um, harmonies and everything and and get in on a little bit of lead vocals here and there. Um, But... uh, yeah, that's about it. Yeah. We actually have five members total. Five members total. Mm-hmm. Um, we have Connor's brother, Spencer, who plays the bass. Mm-hmm. We're stepping to bass. And uh, then we have our friend Jordan Otto, who is killing it on percussion as well. And then his brother, who's also named Connor, and he uh, helps us out with harmonica. So it's a, it's a solid group. So we get a little acoustic set tonight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how long have you guys been around for, and how did you guys form? Um, I've been writing since high school, and uh, I transferred here 
and um, met Connor. And, you know, we just, we were in the hallway and we sang Alias by Dispatch. And we were singing a harmony together. And then we were just like, man, we should just jam out one day. And so we went to the park and we played some of our own stuff and, you know, added the harmonies and everything. And then we found out we were going to live in the same West Circle dorms and stuff. And we did open mics together. And then from then on out, um, people liked us at open mics. And we just kept the thing going and expanded by adding some members into it, and here we are today. Can you guys talk about your musical backgrounds? Well, I'll we... take, I can take that first. Yeah. So I can break up the monotony. <laughs> um, I, uh, I started out super into um, reggae and, uh, and stuff like Dispatch, you know, vocal music, because reggae is primarily vocal music, a lot of it, you know, a lot of it's repetition other than the vocals, and... And so uh, I was a singer, and I was always into things like Dispatch and, and reggae and, and um, you know, Dave Matthews Band and a lot of stuff like that, um, a lot of vocal music. And um, that's basically influenced my former band. We were called Res Publica, and we, we still play sometimes. But um, the, and, and, that, and I think a lot of that band um, came in a little bit with, with Adrian's sound mixed with his kind of, you know, lighter acoustic sound and kind of, you know, influenced um, us to... Uh, to be, I don't know, a little bit, a little bit more, um, I don't know, aggressive, maybe. Yeah, Some, cause, uh, somewhat. Yeah, because I grew up and I fell in love with R and B, and the good kind, you know, '90s, <laughs> you know, the quality lyrics, you know, it meant something back then, and uh, there's some class to it, and um, and I just loved it. But at the same time, I was studying classically in high school, and did the whole solo ensemble deal, and you know, loved singing in choir and. Ended up going to college and for music and studying currently studying opera and we're both actually MSU students as voice double majors voice performance and music education and singing opera and here we are you know doing our own thing very vocally driven music <laughs> yeah. so how do you balance studying classical music and being able to perform should ask our professor <laughs> uh, we're we're still. I don't know, we just try to keep it safe, you know, we know our priorities are with the school and with the operas, and yes, we love it, you know, we love both, you know, both sides of our music life, but, um, you know, at the same time, we got to be careful in order to make both of them work, because we want both of them work, to work, and, mm-hmm. and so far, I think we're managing that pretty well, and we're having fun progressing in both areas, and... Mm-hmm. And just gonna hope to continue that. We're way. not too we're not too hardcore here. I think if it was more of a, you know, like, a like in my former band that I was in, I was a little bit more. I mean, it wasn't screaming by any by any means, but it was it was a little bit more aggressive singing, and that I had a hard time with. This not so much. I don't go into a lesson with you know losing my voice, you know, having mm-hmm. lost my voice at a gig, you know, doing this. So it's really not not very hard. I would say. Well, without further ado, I'm sure our listeners are begging <laughs> to hear a song from you. So can you play a song for us? Yes, we will uh, play I'll Try For You. But I won't, no, I won't today 
And in the studio is Adrian and Connor. They are representing the local band East Harvest. Wonderful job, guys. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So I'm curious. Um, what We were talking, you guys are, are classically trained musicians. You're, you're vocal performance majors and music ed at the College of Music here. Do you think that your education in classical music helps or hinders you when it comes to writing songs like this? Well, I think the degree helps um, just because I'm being exposed to theory, music theory, and ear training and all that. And um, with both of us undergoing that and our whole band, actually, um, we understand harmonies. We understand when the song needs that, you know, that change. And so we look at, um, I think it enhances our writing, actually, and just understanding, like, you know, how can we make this next section different? Where can we take the song tonally to a new place that's going to attract the ear to listen to the next, you know, 20 seconds of it, you know? And also being around great musicians all the time uh, is, is helpful. I mean, not, you know, most classical singers, you know, I guess aren't, aren't really songwriters, but, you know, you, you hang out around the jazz kids and stuff and you hear their, their, in, your, their input on mm -hmm. your stuff, and I think that, that, that helps a considerable mm -hmm. amount. Definitely. So, yeah. And can you guys talk about the songwriting process? That's all that guy. <laughs> um, I have writer's block. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I just um, because I'm like self-taught on guitar. This is like my second year on the instrument. I um, have to figure out you know something on guitar that is appealing to me to play. And um, once I have that whole thing down, then I'll think of oh I'll find a mood or be in a mood that will just like fill in that um that music and then i'll start writing and um once i have a song down i'll uh, bring it to connor and be like yo let's jam this new track out and um we'll go over it a few times he'll add the harmonies and then i'll give the chord you know the lead sheets to um his brother uh for bass and then Sometimes I'll, like, record it all myself on GarageBand, you know, do harmonies myself, which is always <laughs> weird for my friends to hear. And, um, you know, and then it'll give something for them to, it'll give them something to, you know, look at and refer to when they're trying to learn the song before a show or something. And um, just to help us stay more tight when we're so, we're all so busy with, you know, just you know opera rehearsals classes work everything you know, everything you know. <laughs> yeah so so it's the, the chords come first in the songwriting process it's not the words or the lyrics or a feeling it's the chords for you yeah for me yeah and of course i'm not gonna just like write anything for those chords you know like if the the chords you know have a certain mood and if one day i'm in that actual mood that fits it then the song can continue on in its process. Until then, I just come up with more chords to work with for other, you know, other ideas and whichever mood works with that. Then, respectively, yeah, I'll go there. Well, without further ado, will uh, you guys be willing to play another song for us to take us out? Yeah, why not? We, we will do um, one of our earlier favorites, Questions. Mm -hmm. yeah. I hope the light is on for a reason I hope this is meant to happen I hope she's the one Are we 
Something she would call right Are we something more than nice? Are we some diamonds in the rough? It's times like these When I feel like I need to run But why should I doubt myself With all of these questions?
you're tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. In the studio is Diane Gaderis. She is the newer new mayor of East Lansing, uh, and she became the new mayor last month. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Emily. So tell me about your, your new role as mayor, mayor and your involvement in, the, in city council in the past. I've been on city council for five years. I first was appointed when Mark Meadows resigned to run for the state office, and I was appointed and then ran the following year. So I've been on council one year as an appointment, four years elected, and decided to run again for another four-year term. It's kind of the culmination of the work that I've done in the city. Over the course of the past 30 years when I moved here, age 25, I just started a family. My husband teaches at the university. And we made our home in East Lansing and started getting involved in the different community activities. Over the course of the years, I've been active as a neighborhood president on the planning commission for eight years, worked in the schools, was a parent council president, vice president, different roles, helping out in the community along the way. And then this opportunity came up five years ago, and it's ended up with me this time running and this time being appointed as mayor from three of my five council members. So can you tell me a little bit about some of your your personal accomplishments you've made um, being involved in city council over the past few years, and, and what are your hopes for now having a new role as mayor of East Lansing? Well, I like to think of a council, and I tell everybody that our council is a team. We bring diverse opinions to the council, but our whole goal is to try to um, maintain quality services in the community, strong public service, have strong relations with the university community, and have us be united together in trying to offer a nice place to live and places where people will want to come back and live if they choose to leave for a little while. That They'll always keep the city in their uh, mind as a place they could call home. So one of the things that's very important to us is to have strong neighborhoods, and I believe we've done a lot of the um, different environmental actions to keep them strong as well as improved our parks in the past four years. I, we um, This past year we just completed some parks improvements up on the northern, northern side, and we've now engaged different students and different activists activist groups to help clean out the parks of invasive species, which, which then ultimately brings much more lush greenery and much more um, a pleasant atmosphere there. So we're kind of connected different ways with, with different people to engage them into the community, and I like having that. Um, one of the things that I'm doing as a council member is I'm a liaison to the Commission on the Environment, and this past two years, they thought I thought it might only take them one year, but over the course of almost two years, they put together a climate sustainability plan that was based off the Mayor's Climate Action Agreement in order to have initiatives that we can use as like a comprehensive plan to how we look to the future and try to um, decrease our carbon footprint in this area. And and they've completed that. Now they're taking it to different commissions, different groups, and showing them and having people have an awareness of how these different things will impact um, our community long term and what kinds of little changes they can make to get us there. And so how would you introduce yourself to our listening audience? Um, I guess I, for our listeners um, that, that may want to get to know you as a person, how would you describe yourself? I'd like to think I'm very approachable. I'm I'm a pretty low-key person, and I'm out in the community in different ways. I'm a nurse at Sparrow Hospital, first of all, and that's my full-time job, being on council because we have a city manager form of government. The city manager does the day-to-day operations. But for me, when I'm out in the community, I like when people talk to me. I like to um, work as my liaison to different groups and 
um, when I come across somebody, talk and just get to know them without necessarily them knowing my title or that I'm on council, just to get a feel for how they live in the community. If people want to sit down and have coffee with me, that's great. Um, I'm a late-night person, so a lot of times I try to have meetings then to sit down and just hear what's going on. And um, I would like to think that if you wanted to ask me one attribute, it would be approachable, and I'm glad to meet you. So what projects or issues is East Lansing City Council currently working on? Well, our biggest one is replacing our city manager. He left in October, and we have uh, mapped out a strategy for this January with our consultant where on the 10th, uh, the consultant will bring the top candidates to us. We'll narrow it down, and two weeks later, we'll have the candidates in town. We have a lot of things, a uh, community event that we have scheduled for um, anyone to come and meet the candidates at Hannah Center on the 25th, and you get to know the people, and then we'll follow up with interviews publicly and hopefully choose the next city manager on the 27th. So you, you won over former mayor Vic Loomis, and I understand that he's still on council right now. Yes, uh, um, that's that's the unique thing about our council is um, every two years you uh, the five council members choose who is going to be in that position. It doesn't mean that the other council members aren't any less important. We're, we're as I described, we're a team, and each one, um, as you assume these different roles, you get out in the community and you see things from a different vantage point. And by doing that, I think it makes us a much more rounded, well-rounded council. And I think um, they, the community sees us as a different form of government than, say, our neighboring city, Lansing, which has a mayor form of government. I see. So how would you compare or contrast your leadership approach um, in comparison to um, the former mayor, um, Vic Loomis? Well, I don't think we're that much different. I think our backgrounds are different, but each of us has each of I know he had the community's best interests behind every action he did and I believe I'm I am the same way. I think we just um I rely on him and his expertise and his um professional background and I think in a lot of ways he relied on my expertise and some of the community activism that I'd done. So it's a complement to each other, not necessarily saying one style is different or better than the other. It's just a complement to how we work together as a team. And every time you add a new council member, you figure out how the team works together to have the best outcomes. Well, in the studio is Diane Gaderis. She is uh, here to talk about our new role of Mary Slansing. Diane Gaderis, thanks so much for coming in tonight. Thank you. Now back to Impact Exposure. For well, the Michigan storytelling segment, this is Austin Gorsuch reciting a poem entitled Yggdrasil. We sit on the same step. She looks like she could sleep but decided to dream. I want to tell her that I am the type of person who bites his own fingernails so he can pick his teeth with slices of the moon. She knows that I believe leaving is best left to trees when there are no soils left to sink their roots into. But my moons are full I let them wax because this candle has been melting ever since I realized she was setting fires in my fingertips. I am convinced our stars 
Some men build their revolutions in bottles and seek the flames to ignite them. I am not those men, but I settle like ashes post-inferno for changing my own world one word at a time. And there are men with bigger beards and vocabularies than my own that would tell you I am the reason you look up some nights and see propaganda hidden between the constellations. Why that same colorless emptiness can be found in the exact centers of the pupils that have not been taught to spot the places where the paint is peeling. But I left empty soils like those when I realized thousands of pages of rhetoric and theory had all been carved from the trunk of Yggdrasil, leaving a whispered imprint of a heart with our names in it traced into the bark and a poem beneath it that reads, We still do not know what we are doing. Sometimes we feel so much we just need to destroy something, anything. It seems this is all we know how to do. So forgive us our graffiti on the walls of the world. These words are all we have to understand the lies we invented for ourselves when we realized the truth was never coming. These buildings mean nothing. We know by now. Ancient Norse men with beards bigger than those of the prophets that told jokes about us and laughed when we took the punchlines to heart said that an ash tree was the world. The sparks around them were paintbrushes, making masterpieces lasting only moments. All of these men were cold. Their women were not treated well. But they knew something we forgot, that if an ash tree is the world, then an ash tree is what will be left when it burns like she is gone and there is nothing to say to bring her back. We no longer sit on the same step. She looks like she could sleep, but she's not sleeping. I wanted to tell her that I will be the sort of person who could have made even her believe that belief is just a safety word the human race invented when confronted with limitless possibility. You knew, Mom, that I believed leaving was best left to trees when there were no soils left to sink their roots into. And so I can't hold it against you. But I decided a long time ago, my soils are skies. These roots are branches. And there will always, and I do mean always, be leaves. For the Michigan Storytelling segment, that was Austin Gorsuch. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure. 